0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host Crawford Gribbon and today my guest is William Varner. Will is Professor of Bible and Greek at the Masters University in Santa Clarita, California. And we're talking to Will about his new book, A Commentary on Second Clement in the Apostolic Fathers Commentary Series, just published by Cascade Books, Eugene, Oregon, 2020. Well, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Crawford, thank you very much for having me. I am really looking forward to this. Good. It's great to have you and thank you so much for your time. Before we talk about this book, uh, your new commentary on Second Clement, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You've had a long, distinguished career, both as an educator and as a writer. How does all of that pave the way for the project we're going to be talking about today.
0: Well, I'm not sure if uh, any of your listeners can denote any of what we call a southern accent in the United States, but I grew up in South Carolina, did not grow up in a Christian home. I uh, was not converted to Christ until I was 17. And my educational background uh, is uh, independent, non-denominational, evangelical and may i say how that relates to my interest in second clement uh, my education and my uh, uh, uh training did not really emphasize uh crawford the apostolic fathers or church history uh beyond 96 ad i sometimes tease my my fellow um colleagues that you think that church history stopped at 96 A.D. with uh, the Revelation and picked up somehow in the 16th century with the Reformation. So I I can't say that my uh, first education in biblical studies included the church fathers. I arrived later (laughs) on the scene, but I'm glad I did um, uh, with an appreciation not only of church history as a whole, but an appreciation of the apostolic fathers and particularly the second century. So, um, the last 25 to 30 years has been, uh, not a shift away from the new Testament, but adding on to my new Testament studies, uh, a, a deeper appreciation for these nine to 10 different authors known as the apostolic fathers. And, um, it's been, um, not the exclusive, Uh, scholarly interest of mine in the last few years. I've written on James and Philippians in the New Testament. But it is a delightful effort. I've written on uh, the Didache, the teaching of the apostles, uh, and now I've written on the second Clement. And uh, you may know uh, Paul Foster up in uh, Edinburgh. He's invited me to uh, contribute a chapter on the uh, fragments of Papias, for a book that he's editing. So um, uh, while my interest is all of these Apostolic Fathers, I've written specifically on the Didache, Second Clement, and now the fragments of Papias.
1: Hmm. Maybe we'll get a chance to speak to you a little bit more about that at the end of the conversation, Will. Um, But as you just indicated, whether it's Papias or Clement or whoever wrote the Didache, the Apostolic Fathers are a very varied bunch, aren't they? And uh, some of them have much more attention paid to them than others. Second Clement might be one of the lesser spotted apostolic uh, works or ap- apostolic father's works. What what drew you to Second Clement in particular out of all of this rich and really quite diverse body of literature?
0: Yeah, it certainly is true. I like to say that Second Clement has been overshadowed by uh, uh, his older brother or older sister, whatever you want to call 1st Clement. 1st Clement has had much written on it, and 2nd Clement is just sort of in its shadow. And uh, <clears throat> I've always liked to to, to take up uh, subjects that have been neglected, uh, and 2nd Clement is one of them. And uh, my friend, Sean Wilhite, uh, heard about that and invited me to contribute this commentary on 2nd Clement. Um, actually, uh, you know, I teach a lot of Greek, uh, Crawford, and it's reading selected passages from Didache and 2nd Clement uh, and Papias that really deepen my interest in the Apostolic Fathers and have led to these uh, commentaries. Uh, uh, so 2nd so, um, Clement is a, a homily, uh, uh I think that's a safe word to use. Uh, a sermon, some <laughs> argue about the difference between a homily and a sermon. I'm not sure that's a fruitful discussion in the end, but it very definitely is an oral delivery to a congregation, probably in Corinth, um, uh, that was delivered in the early 2nd century. And call it a sermon, call it a homily, uh, I'm not sure that's fruitful to, to decide. It definitely was not just a letter that this author set down, and I'm going to write now a letter. It seems to have been either a manuscript or a follow-up copy of an oral uh, address. That is very clear that it was delivered orally uh, to a congregation, in my, in my own belief, in the first quarter of the second century.
1: Hmm. So, you've you've given us some sense there of date, composition, provenance, uh, and so on. What do we know? This may be a trick question. What do we know about the author of Second Clement? And why does this sermon, this homily, this letter in Inverticolumis, why does it matter? Why is it important?
0: We know very little <laughs> about the identity. Um, uh, it was not Clement. Almost every <laughs> chapter or treatment, uh, of Second Clement says two things about it. It was not written by Clement, uh, and it's not a letter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so it was not a letter, uh, and, and it was not written by Clement. Uh, of course, the f- traditional First Clement does not have his name attached to it, but there's pretty universal recognition that it was this leader in the Corinthian church at the end of the first century who was responsible for it. But nobody that I know thinks that the author of First Clement is the same author of what is known as Second Clement. It came to be associated with First Clement and is referred to as early as the second, uh, excuse me, the latter part of the second century. But I think it was sort of like kept in the archives maybe of the Corinthian church, And it just kept being associated with this first Clement, so it came to be called second Clement. We do not know who he was, but was he an elder or was he a spiritual leader of the church? Again, probably in Corinth. Yes, I think we can safely say that.
1: Now, of course, in the epistles to the Corinthians in the New Testament, One of the striking features of those letters is that the church doesn't seem to have a leadership class, does it? Um, Office doesn't work quite in the same way there, or may not even be present there, as it is very obviously, for example, in in the letter to the Philippians. Uh, One of the things that you note in the commentary is the very interesting fact that the author or the preacher of 2nd Clement never appeals to any office that he might hold. Can I ask you to speculate, well, why do you think that is?
0: I think he was
1: either a guest or
0: maybe had been a non-office holder, but who who was capable of giving a message, and the congregation had him give the message. He does appeal uh, to the elders and the other leaders in the congregation, but Crawford, it's almost like he's talking about them as another group. And that sort of adds to the mystery of his identity. He may not have been a presbyter. He may not have been an uh an overseer. Uh, it, 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 it's a bit of a mystery. And, and we can't know, uh, that he did hold an office, but I tell you, uh, in, in the terms of the second century, he gave a good message, hmm. uh, filled with scripture, both from what later came to be called the Old Testament and the New Testament. He calls it the, uh, the scrolls and the apostles. In, in an offhand remark in, in chapter 14, the scroll seems to be his use of what we call Old Testament texts. Uh, and the apostles are the apostolic writings, the gospels and so forth and so on. So it, it's filled with scripture. And that I think is one of the richest uh, things about the book mm-hmm. is it's, it's quotations and citations of the gospels and possibly other New Testament writings, but for per- particularly the Old Testament writers.
1: Now, we might just come back to that point, Will, because the point of intertextuality or, or reception of these other documents um, is, is, is very important, and you discuss it at length um, in, in, in the commentary that we're talking about today. But before we jump to that, c- can I just ask you again a little bit about the form of the text? So obviously we don't know very much about the preacher or the, the, the writer or how the sermon may have come to be uh, written down, but we do know what the structure of the sermon is, don't we? And it does help us understand perhaps what preaching was like in the early second century. How how would you describe the structure, the themes, um, the, the, the emphases of that kind of preaching?
0: Well, if we are looking for a uh, traditional expository sermon in evangelical uh, s- churches today, a text is taken and then it's expounded and just other texts might be brought in, but the preacher sticks with that one text. We're not going to find that in second Clement. Uh, in chapter two, he cites Isaiah 54 at length like he's going to expound it, but we don't find him sticking to Isaiah 54 apart from the brief chapter 2 in which he mentions it. So it's not a traditional sermon like we would think of, maybe preaching in an expository way through the Sermon on the Mount, taking four or five verses at a time, expounding them, and then going. No, it's not that. If he takes Isaiah 54 as his text, he departs from it pretty quickly and does not return to it. But that does not mean that he doesn't refer to the scriptures. He does constantly. But it's not an expository sermon like we would be used to in a church that uh, where the preacher or the pastor goes through a, a book or a section, uh, a passage by passage. So, it, it you know, you, you shouldn't be expecting that when you come to 2nd Clement. That is what? Why some say it might be a homily, but it's not a sermon in the modern sense of the term.
1: That that makes sense, doesn't it? Now, you 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 mentioned just before well the the issue of intertextuality and the way in which Second Clement is probably one of the most important, one of the most full um, early Christian writings in terms of its um, it's drawing in this this other textual. Um, tradition that, that, that surrounds it. But one of the things you talk about in a very interesting way in the commentary is the fact that Second Clement itself has this occasionally canonical status in some of the early uh, lists of that, that, that we would recognise as, as, as canon lists. How does that work and why does that matter?
0: Well, it's very interesting in one of the oldest uh, full copies of the Old and New Testament what we have, Codex Alexandrinus, at the end of it, there is 1st and 2nd Clement after the Book of Revelation. Uh, wow, <laughs> that's interesting. Now, uh, the end of 2nd Clement is broken off because the end of the manuscript, the Codex, is broken off. But there, evidently somebody in uh, around 400 A.D., thought very highly of 1st and 2nd Clement and put it in the Codex at the end of the New Testament. It could be that they held it as canonical. Now, church fathers do mention 1st Clement more than 2nd Clement. So it's like 2nd Clement is just being brought in on the coattails of 1st Clement. But, uh, of course, uh, there's references to it, vague references to it in later Fathers, but not until uh, Bryennius discovered that uh, 11th century codex with the famous inclusion of the Dedicae in it in 1873 did a complete copy of a second Clement emerge. uh, The one that ended up (laughs) in the possession of the British Museum, later British Library, uh, donated. Uh, by a, uh, a an Orthodox patriarch to King Charles uh, the First, uh, it has that uh, codex in it. Uh, excuse me, that codex has Second Clement in it, but it 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 it, it lacks the last few chapters. So now we have, uh, since Bryanius's discovery in the late 19th century, First and Second Clement in its entirety. Uh, but that also helps to show that uh, the uh, church fathers that cite it did have a full copy of it, although it did not survive uh, and uh, excuse me, a full copy did not survive antiquity until a scribe uh, uh, copied it down in the 11th century.
1: And thus we have it in its entirety today. Hmm. Just to return to that point of intertextuality or reception, uh, you, I think you, you tell us that this is um, one of the one of the writings of the apostolic fathers that contains most allusions to or quotations of what becomes the Old Testament, um, those collections of Jesus sayings and the other non-canonical material. Can, can you you mentioned Isaiah fifty four just a few minutes ago, but can you can you talk us through? Um, some of the significance of of, of that reception of of other Christian writings or or, or scripture uh, that's circulating in that period.
0: Yes, uh, the Lagia, the the sayings of Jesus are quoted a number of times and some of them seem to be quoted like it is in written form. The interesting thing is uh, other sayings of Jesus survive uh, in oral form and it looks like... Uh, uh, the way in which 2nd Clement quotes some of these legia, these Jesus sayings, these did not end up in any canonical books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So um, uh, uh, scholars have isolated probably almost two dozen uh, unwritten sayings of Jesus. Unwritten means that they were not written in the canonical Gospels, but survived quotations of church fathers, uh, there's a fascinating one uh, that's actually quoted in um, in um, the Shepherd of Hermas, uh, the uh, Eldad and Modat. It's called, and some think that um, Second Clement is quoting the uh, though he doesn't call it Eldad and Modat. It's the same type of quotation that appears in Hermas, so he uh, he may have now. You know, Crawford, uh, in in quoting some of these, does that mean uh, that 2nd Clement always held these as canonical? We cannot be sure about that. Uh, We modern preachers at times will quote uh, canonical scriptures and then quote a saying from somebody else that clearly is not canonical, but at least is authoritative. Uh, <laughs> some some church history scholars are now using the term scripture and canon are, are authoritative writings and canon and distinguishing between them. Fascinating subject uh, that something could be considered as scripture, but not be considered as canonical. Uh, some of the... Um, uh, uh, fourth century fathers, uh, like Eusebius and, and Athanasius would talk, uh, talk about some scriptures were certainly canonical New Testament scriptures, and there were others like Shepherd of Hermas and Didache that can be read, uh, be read with profit, but not be considered as canonical scripture. And I think, uh, what's going on here uh is, is is that there's a number of books that had not achieved canonical status in the early second century uh, uh that uh, 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 second Clement refers to so uh it's it's a fascinating subject but one that's not limited to second clement first Clement <laughs> refers to uh Eldad and Modet as well as well as other second uh century. Uh, writers. So, um, uh, was the canon frozen at 96 AD? I think that would be a super conservative attitude to take. Um, but I, I personally believe that what became the canonical scriptures were finished by 100 AD. But, uh, I'm not sure that, uh, first Clement, second Clement, even Polycarp, if you ask them, all right, now which one do you think of our canonical polycarp, he would say, what are you talking about? These are uh, traditional writings that we hold in high value and I think we need to just be satisfied with that uh, that uh, we can't take the 4th century and just read it back into the early 2nd century when it comes to uh, what uh, Eusebius called the hama legumina, things that are uh, confessed by all or the anti-legumina Uh, things that are not uh, canonical. I think we have to be satisfied with sacred tradition is important to 2nd Clement and not force him into saying, you've got to tell me which one is canon and which one is not.
1: Well, uh, that's a very perceptive comment. Well, one of the big themes of your commentary is the danger of anachronism, isn't it? The danger of pushing back modern categories, modern debates into... Um, the literature of antiquity. And I suppose that that, that thought takes us to the, the big question, which is, what is Second Clement about? Yes,
0: uh, I think that's very, very important. Um, I have a colleague who's teaching, uh, I, I mean, a colleague in academia, who's uh, teaching uh, uh, in uh, Finland right now. Uh, and uh, his name is James Kelhoffer. Uh, and uh, he has shared with me a number of his articles that he has written because he's preparing the Hermeneia commentary on 2nd Clement. And I do believe that Kellhoffer has zeroed in on something, and I develop it also in my book. And it's this idea uh, that appears four times in three different chapters in 2nd Clement that we who have experienced the grace of god from our patron are to re, re, uh render repayment in gratitude to our patron as his clients uh, a lot has been written in recent years on the patron client uh uh imagery uh that you oftentimes see in, in antiquity and i believe that's what's going on there uh the idea of repayment or the idea of uh, uh, an obligation to some evangelical ears, uh, smacks too much of work salvation. But Clement is not talking about that at all. Right out of the gate in chapter one, he has this amazing chapter about God's sovereign grace. I mean, you would think he's, uh, he's a, he's a 16th century Genevan theologian. God's sovereign grace. Uh, you know, and rescues us uh, by by his his his, uh, his reaching out. I mean, really strong. And then right after that, he says, "What shall we do to repay uh, God for His amazing grace? We will obey. Uh, we will uh, uh, do what He has commanded us to do." Well, that's not work salvation at all. Uh, the Psalmist says, "What shall I render the Lord?" for all that he has done to me. I will take the cup of salvation and I will praise the name of the Lord. Uh, uh, our, uh, uh, the, uh, there was a great Scottish theologian, and here I am, I don't need to talk to a Scotsman about a great Scottish theologian, Thomas Torrance, who in the 50s uh, wrote a critical uh, chapter on 2nd Clement by saying that 2nd Clement undercuts the grace of God uh, and and is uh, talking about what I guess some theologians would call a work salvation. Well, with all due respect to Torrance, I, I, I think he read him wrong, uh, wrongly. Uh, uh, he, he is not talking about we do this, we do this, we do this to earn God's favor. It's because we have experienced God's favor. As God's client, we render obedience and thankfulness. Uh, to God as our patron. I really think that that is the heart and soul of the message. And when we look at the theology, the Christology, the uh, the, the theology proper, as theologians would call it, uh, the soteriology, it must be understood in that. I call it the theological praxis of the book. And when we recognize that his praxis, his behavior-oriented message, is rooted in uh, a, a a soteriology that's filled with grace, uh, I do think with respect to uh, Dr. Torrance that he read him wrongly. And I think the patron-client dynamic coming out of the ancient world can help us to discern that
1: in a little bit better way. Mm. Now, you mentioned there, Will, the books Christology, Soteriology, Theology Proper, and so on. You didn't mention its pneumatology, its doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I wonder, what could you say about it?
0: Uh, How about very little? (laughs) If there is a criticism of the book, but again, it's a modern criticism, is that it lacks a pneumatology. And uh, how true that is. And uh, now, uh, again, maybe that is an indication, not so much of its theological barrenness as its early writing. Uh, 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 he doesn't mention we. We are so used to I believe in God the Father Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ His Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's it's like Trinitarian, and, and I'm not questioning that. I'm just saying let us not be too quick to take a fourth and a century or later Trinitarian view and impose it and say uh, Clement, you've got to say it the way. Uh, uh, that the uh, later Trinitarian theologians said it. Uh, But uh, it is true. I can't say much about uh, (laughs) pneumatology because the writer does not say much about pneumatology. Hmm. You know, brother, uh, (laughs) I'm wondering if we, um, how many times have I given a sermon and I've talked about uh, God, I've talked about, uh, the Lord Jesus, and maybe I didn't mention the Spirit either. <laughs> and and you would go from that and say, well, Varner doesn't believe in pneumatology uh, because he didn't mention the Spirit. Uh, the same uh, kindness that I would ask you to show to me, maybe, maybe uh, uh, we should show to uh, the uh, preacher in 2nd Clement for not mentioning the Spirit like we would want him to mention.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad your orthodoxy is still intact, Will. <laughs> um, your, your book, Second Clement and Introductory Commentary, appears in a really exciting new series that we'll be talking to some other contributors of uh, in the next few months. And that series is called The Apostolic Father's Commentary Series, published by Cascade Books out of Eugene, Oregon. Um, th- this is a, it, it's a commentary which you prepared, which, uh, as you, you've indicated, is full of... You know, proper scholarly apparatus. But it's also been written to welcome new readers into this field of study, isn't it? What do you hope your book will do? And why do you think people like me, for example, should read The Apostolic Fathers?
0: Oh, because uh, uh, in the evangelical world in which I move, uh, the Apostolic Fathers are, have not been given the attention that they should. And I must say that I uh, was uh, um, uh, center number one in that regard uh, in, in coming to the Apostolic Fathers late in my academic career. Uh, I am trying to make up for that, but also to share uh, with not just evangelicals, but particularly evangelical readers who have oftentimes neglected the Apostolic Fathers. <coughs> when we see that uh, these books, <coughs> I'm sorry, that these books uh, uh, really bridge the gap uh, between the Apostles and the later, more well known writers like Irenaeus and Tertullian. They provide a bridge between. Uh, they're called the Apostolic Fathers, not because they were apostles, but because their lives and ministries oftentimes overlapped with the apostles. Papias, it looks like, knew uh, John and 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 new people who knew the the original apostles. So he overlapped. And First Clement talks about Paul and Peter in a way that uh, you know shows his familiarity polycarp knew the apostle john these overlapped with the apostles and uh uh, when uh, a a colleague of mine not in the same uh university but in the same circle said "Uh, you're writing on second clement why would you write on a non-canonical book well this person was a very strong calvinist and i felt like i I didn't (laughs) i felt like coming back at him and saying, do you think it would be a waste of time to write a book on the theology of John Calvin? I'm sure he would say, no, it's not a waste of time at all. Well, John Calvin's non-canonical. <laughs> I, I think he is. <laughs> uh, would, would it be a waste of time to write on the theology of Martin Luther? Of course not. Uh, and they're not canonical. But it's just that, again, Conrad uh, 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 Crawford, i I say this over and over and over in the circles that I move in. Sadly, uh, many of my friends jump from the apostle John in 96 AD to the Reformation. Uh, what happened in between? Well, a study of the apostles, uh, apostolic fathers will begin to correct, uh, that, that neglect, uh, not just in evangelical circles, uh, but, uh, in uh, uh Christian circles as a whole, uh, our Greek Orthodox friends, our Roman Catholic friends uh, have not neglected, although I wish they would spend more time on the Apostolic fathers than some of the later fathers. So uh, that's what I hope to uh, do is uh, is uh, raise a, a new awareness of these writers that talked to people who knew the apostles. That's exciting to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, it's been great to talk to you today. Thanks so much for your time uh, for, 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 and for coming to share um, you, your thoughts about this really important new book, Second Clement, an introductory commentary in the Apostolic Fathers commentary series published by Cascade Books out of Eugene, Oregon. Um, thanks for writing the book. Thanks for coming on to the show to talk about it. Thanks for your time and take care. Thank you. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.